Welcome to You News, the podcast using the power of Univision to bring the news that matters to you in English. Today is Wednesday, March 31st. I'm Lorraine Gaceres. These are today's headlines. Day three of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former police officer accused of killing George Floyd, underway in Minneapolis after the jury heard gripping testimony from those who witnessed the death of Floyd firsthand. And just days after a brutal hate crime in New York City, a suspect now under arrest, police saying that man was on parole for killing his own mother. And growing controversy over the origins of the coronavirus pandemic as Pfizer reports its COVID-19 vaccine is 100% effective and well tolerated in children 12 to 15 years old. This and much more today on You News, recorded live in our newsroom in Miami. We begin today with the latest on the murder trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin. He's charged with killing George Floyd last May. The prosecution today showing never before seen surveillance video of the last few minutes of George Floyd's life inside the convenience store. Christopher Martin, the cashier who took that fake $20 bill, detailed those moments. When you were you know, communicating with him. Can you describe for the jurors, you know, generally what his demeanor was like? What was his condition like? So when I had asked, asked him if he played uh, baseball, uh, he went on to respond to that, but it kind of took him a little long to get to what he was trying to say. So it would appear that he was high. And today began with more from the off-duty firefighter who begged police to let her assist Floyd when he was on the ground. Your assessment of his uh, medical condition at that time, did you believe he needed immediate medical attention? Yes, sir. Chauvin's defense has argued that the officer did what his training told him to do and that Floyd's death was not caused by the officer's knee on his neck, by, but by a combination of illegal drug use, heart disease, high blood pressure, and the adrenaline flowing through his body. And meanwhile, on day two of the blockbuster trial, the jury listening to eyewitness testimony from a number of bystanders who witnessed the death of George Floyd, including emotional testimony from the teenage girl who shot the now infamous video of former officer Derek Chauvin with his knee on Floyd's neck. Here's Azul Alvarez. On day two of the Derek Chauvin trial, eyes and ears of bystanders were on display. He cried for his mom. He was in pain. Darlena, the 18-year-old who filmed those harrowing last minutes of George Floyd's life, taking the stand. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. The day featured testimony from several bystanders who were at the scene. First, Donald Williams, the mixed martial artist, telling jurors he felt he'd just witnessed a murder. Throughout day two, several minors offering testimony. At one point, I saw him put more and more weight onto him. The biggest moment of the day, Minneapolis firefighter Genevieve Hansen, who was off duty at the time of the incident. I literally watched the police officers not take a pulse and not do anything to save a man. 
and I am a first responder myself. Her testimony became argumentative after defense attorney Eric Nelson pressed her if she would have been distracted from firing a fire herself if a crowd showed up, suggesting Chavin was distracted from bystanders preventing him from noticing Floyd's rapidly deteriorating condition. I would be confident in doing my job and there's nothing anybody could say that would distract me. There was a man being killed. I would have been able to provide medical attention to the best of my abilities and this human was denied that right. Azul Alvarez, U News. And now to that bombshell story about Republican Representative Matt Gates, first reported by the New York Times. The Justice Department is investigating the Florida representative over a possible relationship with an underage girl. Edwin Pitti has the details from Washington, D.C. Edwin? Lorraine, I can tell you the Florida Congressman Matt Gates says he did not have a sexual relationship with a 17-year-old girl. He says an organized criminal extortion involving a former official from the Department of Justice was seeking $25 million while threatening to smear his name. It was the New York Times who first reported that the Justice Department is investigating Gates for possibly being involved in a sexual relationship with a minor. The investigation is looking at whether the Florida Republican congressman paid for the tinker to travel with him, which violates federal sex trafficking laws. This is what he said during an interview with Fox News. What is happening is an extortion of me and my family involving a former Department of Justice official. And the FBI and the Department of Justice were so concerned about this attempted extortion of a member of Congress that they asked my dad to wear a wire, which he did with the former Department of Justice official. Tonight, I am demanding that the Department of Justice and the FBI release the audio recordings that were made under their supervision and at their direction, which will prove my innocence. The Justice Department investigation was open in the final months of the Trump administration, according to the New York Times, and is part of a larger probe into a political ally of Gates, who, was, who has pleaded not guilty to sex trafficking charges. A person familiar with the matter told the Washington Post that while the probe was underway, Gates' family raised allegations that the congressman was being extorted and the FBI separately is exploring those claims. Gates has not yet been charged, and so far the Justice Department has declined to comment. Other reports are saying that Gates was contemplating not seeking re-election to possibly start working for the conservative media outlet Newsmax. We are reporting live in Washington, D.C. Back to you, Lorraine. It'll be interesting to see how this story develops. Thank you, Edwin. And now to other news out of Washington. President Joe Biden will reveal his infrastructure package today, potentially facing the same obstacle as his predecessor, how to pay for it. Biden will roll out the proposal at a Pittsburgh event. According to sources, the plan will include roughly $2 trillion in spending over eight years and would raise the corporate tax rate to 28 percent to fund it. The White House said the tax hike, combined with measures designed to stop offshoring of profits, would fund the infrastructure plan within 15 years. And in the meantime, U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins Virginia Governor Ralph Northam Tuesday to announce a major rail expansion package. It's a $3.7 billion deal between the Commonwealth of Virginia, CXX, Amtrak, 
and Virginia Railway Express. The package will expand passenger rail services between Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. Tuesday's events included a signing ceremony with Northam and the CEOs from all three companies. And small business owners now have more time to apply for the Paycheck Protection Program. President Biden signed the PPP Extension Act law into, uh, into law Tuesday. It gives businesses until May 31st to submit applications and gives the Small Business Administration more time to process them. Biden says the program has money left and about 90,000 businesses are still online. He says he's especially focused on including black and Latino entrepreneurs. And Americans who do not usually file taxes will soon receive their part of the stimulus package. The Treasury Department and IRS are working on rolling out the payments for Social Security recipients. Those recipients could receive up to $1,400 as part of the nearly $2 trillion COVID relief bill President Biden signed into law. Officials say the majority of these payments will be sent electronically and dispersed by direct deposit or existing direct express cards. People should expect to receive the money in their bank accounts on April 7th, but it could be as soon as this weekend. And tensions are rising between the U.S. and China after new questions over the validity of the WHO's report on the origins of the coronavirus. Meanwhile, cases continue to rise here nationwide, states rolling back restrictions despite warnings from health officials to do the opposite. The constant warning that state and city officials seem to be ignoring. Now is not the time to pull back on mitigation efforts. Los Angeles County announcing it's pulling back on restrictions starting next week, expanding indoor dining and opening theme parks, bars and other businesses. When I said I had a feeling of impending doom, it is sort of this feeling that I've had surge after surge serving on the front lines at Massachusetts General Hospital um, and, and recognizing that right now it's preventable. We know that it's preventable. We have the science to prevent. We, we know what we need to do to stop the, uh, to stop the surge and we would ask Ask everybody to go ahead and do that. Right now, COVID cases are rising in 26 states, infections up 15% nationwide in the past two weeks. At least 12,000 cases of variants have been reported, mostly registered in California, Florida, and Michigan. We haven't abandoned our protocols. It's just that we've got a higher proportion of variants. And part of that is people getting tired. Um, there's fatigue and there's variants and there's more travel. And that's some of what the story is here. And as vaccination efforts move along, Pfizer announcing its vaccine is 100% effective in preventing COVID-19 in children 12 to 15 years old. The data has yet to be peer-reviewed, but the pharmaceutical company is planning to submit its results to the FDA as soon as possible to expand the emergency use authorization. Meanwhile, controversy mounting after the U.S. and 13 nations raised concerns over the validity of the WHO's report on the origins of the coronavirus. China now responding, saying the United States has gathered a very small number of countries to issue a so-called joint statement to openly question and deny the reports of the joint study by Chinese and WHO experts. It is conclusive proof that they do not respect science and use virus tracing issues to engage in political manipulation. 
And WHO authors of the report say that China did answer tough questions, even though it was reported earlier that they were experiencing delays with data collection and accessing samples. Meanwhile, Pfizer is also testing its vaccine on younger children ages 5 to 11. Those results won't be available until later in the fall. Tomorrow, vaccine eligibility will expand to 16 and above nationwide. Some states like Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio, Kansas and Arkansas have, have already done so. But it's important to mention that only Pfizer vaccine is approved for those young as, as young as 16. Moderna, Johnson & Johnson are allowed for people 18 and older only. More of you news after this short break. Imagine a daily newscast that speaks to you about your world in plain English. Each weekday, we partner with Hispanic America's most trusted news source to bring you the stories from home and abroad that matter to you. The effects of COVID-19 will be felt for decades to come. Both parties are very far apart. Approximately 250,000 people have lost their lives. You news covers the news of your world. It makes it easy to understand. Your world, your news. You news on Fusion. Welcome back to You News. And now to the U.S.-Mexico border. The Biden administration, for the first time, allowed journalists inside its main border detention facility for migrant children. A tour Tuesday reveals a severely overcrowded tent structure where more than 4,000 migrants were crammed into a space intended for 250. And the youngest ones were kept in a large playpen with mats on the floor for sleeping. With thousands of children and families arriving at the U.S. in recent weeks, President Biden has been under pressure to bring more transparency to the process of handling the influx. And joining me now is Marisa Limon Garza. She's the deputy director of the humanitarian organization Hope Border Institute in El Paso, Texas. Thanks for being here, Marisa. What's your reaction to seeing these images of that holding facility in Donna, Texas? These images are always devastating for us when we see children in conditions like this. We wouldn't want this upon any of our family members and loved ones, and that extends to these, these kiddos as well. So it's, it's horrific to see. We know the administration is doing as much as they can as quickly as they can, but we honestly need more urgency so that no one, no child is in a condition like this. Marissa, you mentioned that many of the migrants that are apprehended at the border and then transported to El Paso don't know about the, they're about to be expelled from the country. What is that moment like for migrants when they realize that? We've basically been exporting panic attacks. So people are coming to the southern border. They've been apprehended in South Texas, brought over 800 miles to our community here in El Paso, Ciudad Juarez, and are expelled without being notified that they're being expelled. Upon the realization that they are now in Mexico, 800 miles from where they started, there's obviously panic, tears, frustration, um, on top of hunger and uh, uncertainty. So we're putting people in grave danger all to keep the American public um, safe and using the Title 42 policy as a way to do that. It's just incredible to understand why they're not being told. But your organization is helping migrants with food, water, among other things, and shoelaces. Why shoelaces? 
When people are in custody of any kind of agency within DHS, shoelaces are removed because they can be used to provide any kind of self-harm, which obviously we want to avoid. That means that people are crossing uh, without that kind of basic humanitarian dignity, and so their shoes are flopping around. And so one of the basic ways that we can just walk in a company with people is to provide just a pair of shoelaces for them so they have that resource and can feel a little more human in one of the darkest times of their lives. And Marissa, my last question, your organization is calling for the end of Title 42, which you mentioned a few seconds ago. This is a Trump era policy under which migrants are expelled quickly to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Do you see a correlation with this order being enforced and the number of minors arriving alone here in this country? We do see correlation. Unfortunately, there's many different reasons why we have unaccompanied children at the U.S. border, whether it's because the family unit is only uh, allowed under the U.S. government to be defined as a biological parent and child. So if a pair of siblings came together, they would be considered unaccompanied, even if the older sibling is over 18. We also know that some people, some children are coming on their own from Central America and other places. And then we know for a fact that there are families that are trying to... uh, enter the country uh, using between ports of entry and are being expelled. But to make that journey, it's not something you necessarily want to subject a child to. And so families are having to make very difficult decisions. So our effort is to really eliminate this policy, to reopen the ports of entry for asylum seekers, and to use a safe, orderly, and humane process to provide welcome and reception. Here in the borderlands, the Frontera Welcome Coalition is over 70 organizations strong, and we stand ready to receive migrants and asylum seekers. We've done that work based on previous receptions of families as well as all the best practices related to COVID-19 and how to mitigate the spread of the virus. So we stand ready and we ask the U.S. government to help meet this call and help us be part of the answer to meet the moment. And Marissa, on that point, before we go, what can people do to help organizations like yours or migrants at the border? Currently, we're seeking investments of support through the Border Refugee Assistance Fund that we offer at our website, hopeborder.org. That is a fund specifically designed uh, in partnership with Bishop Mark Seitz to meet the needs of migrants and asylum seekers in Ciudad Juarez. Well, thank you so much, Marisa Limon Garza of Hope Border Institute for your insight and your time. Thank you. And meanwhile, the growing difficulties at the U.S.-Mexico border could be worsened by the departure of another migrant caravan, this latest one leaving from Honduras. Jonathan Mejia has more on the situation in Tegucigalpa. Stephanie Barahona picks up the pace, afraid of being left behind. Just as we're going, the advantage we have is that we're going to go around. We're going through mountains. Elena Castejón is following in another small group. It hurts me that I left my two girls, because I have three children, but there is no other way but to keep going. These women decided to join the migrant caravan in Honduras that left yesterday for the United States. I have hope that they will let me in. If it's God's will, to God, nothing is impossible. They know that the governments of Guatemala and Mexico will send police and soldiers to their borders to stop them, but they say they don't care about that. I'm not afraid of this road. Here, we live in one of the most dangerous countries in the world. We're going to go to a better country. Mexico is better than this country in which we live. Why would we be afraid if I go to a better place than this? For many of these migrants, however, the road in their own country has been hard. In different places, police checkpoints stop them to check their papers. 
their identification, and if they're bringing minors, the birth certificate of their children, and if they are not going with their father, the power of attorney. Some shed tears because they will have to return home. They won't accept me because they say I'm a minor, and without the letter of permission, I can't go. Reported by Claudia Mendoza in Omoa, Honduras, Jonathan Mejia, U News. And New York State's le last legislator passed a bill Tuesday to legalize recreational marijuana, and Governor Andrew Cuomo said he would sign it. Once signed, New York would become the 15th state in the country, along with the District of Columbia, to have legalized the drug for recreational use. The measure allows for a possession of up to three ounces of marijuana and 24 ounces of marijuana concentrate and allows for the growth of up to six plants at home. The bill will also expunge the criminal records of tens of thousands of people. And also in New York, the rise in attacks against Asian residents is drawing widespread condemnation and rising the alarms about the failure of bystanders to intervene. In the past days, two brutal attacks shocking the city. Nayeli Chavez-Geller has the story. The disturbing images recorded on a security camera show how a man kicks a 65-year-old woman in the stomach and she then falls to the ground where the suspect continues to hit her. All, as police say, he shouted anti-Asian slurs at her. The attack happened outside a building where instead of coming to the victim's aid, the doorman closed the doors on the woman. Hours earlier, a man was brutally attacked while inside a subway car full of passengers. Not one single commuter came to the victim's aid, who seemed to be left unconscious by the perpetrator that left the scene as if nothing had happened. The video, recorded on a cell phone, was then posted on social media. New Yorkers reacted to the latest hate crimes against the Asian community, which has been under attack nationwide. I'd be afraid to help for fear of the aggressor's reaction. I would help, of course. We are all human beings. According to the psychologist, apathy is quite normal when bystanders are exposed to such a degree of violence. The first thing that happens is shock. Then you try to evaluate how to respond, what to do. And then there is also denial that this event is taking place. The office that manages this property has said that the doorman who witnessed the crime against the woman in total indifference has been suspended and that the incident is currently under investigation. In California, two Asian men reported their vehicles were set on fire intentionally. And in Atlanta, six women who worked in a massage parlor were shot to death, sparking terror from this community all around the country. In New York, Nayeli Chavez-Geller, U News. And today we're learning that the NYPD made an arrest just a few hours ago in the case of the 65-year-old woman who was attacked. The suspect had been out on parole since 2019 after serving time for fatally stabbing his mother in 2002. He is now facing several charges, including two counts of assault as a hate crime. Thanks for listening to You News, the podcast. Don't forget to follow You News on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you haven't yet, go to your favorite podcast platform and subscribe, rate, and review. Join us tomorrow for a new episode. Until then.